I mean, once again, you know, I get to work with incredibly talented people. So it's not like I'm thinking, oh, well, how are they going to make this work? You know, Mike knows how to make things work. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So he's got, he comes up with a script at a certain point, you know, like Black Klansman. You know, the first time he sent Black, me Black Klansman, he had not worked on it. The first time he sent me Black Klansman, man, I, this is the only time I've ever done this. I called him up. I said, you really shouldn't do this movie. You know, it's, it, the script has glaring problems, and and I don't think it's a particularly good script. I think, and he goes, "Yeah, I hear you. I, th I think you're right. I think you're right. I think you're right." And two months later, he sends me this revised script, right? And he's worked on it, you know. And wow, yeah, you know, he's made it work. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. The Director is Pete Chapman's digital studio, built on the pillars of craftsmanship that ensure a unique vision. I'm talking about story, innovation, perspective. Learn more about the director, and better yet, get your official director's chair wear by visiting www.drctr.video. That's drctr.video. Hey, what's happening, y'all? This is Pete Chapman welcoming you to episode 17 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Uh, on location again, I am shooting this from day four of... Uh, Mythic Quest, and uh, we're about to wrap up my two-day, I'm sorry, my two-episode block uh, tomorrow, and it's been going really well. Uh, face mask on the ear for those watching this on video, but um, yeah, uh, today we welcome uh, the great Mr. Barry Alexander Brown, uh, known uh, by many as being Spike Lee's most frequent editor. Um, and he is also a director in his own right. We get into a lovely conversation about uh, editing, obviously, filmmaking, avoiding creative death, and what it takes to make it in this game. Uh, I think you'll enjoy what we have to say. I wanna thank my producer, Tristan Nash, for making the introduction to bring this interview together. And I hope you enjoy. I'll get back with y'all after the jump. Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. Well, I wanted to welcome Mr. Barry Alexander Brown to the podcast live. Well, not live, but uh, coming in uh, through Zoom from uh, beautiful Martha's Vineyard. You can see. <laughs> so I always like to ask a question um, to see how well people know their resume. Um, can you tell me about Barry Cutmaster Brown? and who that guy is and what project he was working on. You mean from the beginning, a quick thing? Well, I saw one, I saw that um, for one film in, oh man, what was that? In 2000, you had an additional editing credit as Barry Cutmaster Brown. Oh, uh, maybe. <laughs> that would have been, that would have been something Spike did. I, I don't, that, I don't know. I mean, uh, Maybe I helped out on something and, you know, and, yeah. you know, he likes to call me the cut master. 
Yeah, know. that was that was for bamboozle. Um, so oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I did. I cut all of the. As a matter of fact, I cut all of the uh, the uh, TV shows. You know uh, those sequences for for it. You know, and I I didn't know I didn't know anything about about what he was doing, right? And I was away. I was out of New York, and I came back, and he said, "Oh, you're back, good. You know, I, we're screening these dailies, and it's something I would really like you to come in and cut. You know, um, uh, just just cut these 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 handful of sequences." So I go in to watch the dailies, and, <laughs> you know, and the dailies of these. Two black guys, African American black guys, but they're coming out in blackface, and and all, and all the audiences in blackface, right? You know, I tell you, I, I sat there like this. Like, what the fuck? What the fuck? You know? Normally, but you get a spike. heads up, right? But it's right. No, you didn't give me a heads up. He doesn't give people a heads up. It's Spike, and um, and. Uh, if it had been anybody else, anybody else, I would have gotten up and walked out. I said, no, no, no fuck you. Fuck this. No, no, I would have been gone. Well, that, you know? But it's Spike, that, so you figure, okay, it's not what I think it is. It's not, it's not the obvious thing of what's going on here, right? Right, right. And um, he's got a bigger plan in mind, <laughs> you know, but I was... You know, uh, initially I was just so um, shocked, you know, mm. and, and you know, outraged, outraged, actually. <laughs> you know, my <laughs> wife and I just watched that again uh, about a month and a half ago, and it's amazing how much it stands up. Mm. It's amazing how much it stands up, and, and, mm. and, and even things in that film, like uh, there's this hip-hop artist, Bobby Shmurda, who had, there's a notorious, notorious YouTube clip of him dancing on a table for the record label. And yeah. it's exactly what you guys did in, um, in that scene. on the table? On the table, in a conference room, like 20 to 30 people deep. And it's like, mm. okay. Um, that, that makes me wanna, I, I, I was gonna hop to this question later, but like, I, that, you had the you had the confidence of knowing that there was something in mind with this footage, right? But like it's Spike, it's Spike, you know, yeah. What's the worst case scenario? Like when you like you're you're excited about a project, you know what it is, you're you've signed on, and then you get dailies that you kind of recognize or like, ah, oh, this ain't it. Like, how do you, well, you know, does that ever this happen? Not been, this has not been my career, you know. Um, and I've been I've been extraordinarily lucky. Mm-hmm. To uh, to to listen. It's I didn't start out as an editor. I started out in documentaries, you know, producing and directing, you know, and and sometimes cutting my own stuff uh, for lack of funds, really, for lack of that I couldn't afford an editor, you know. Right. And, and then my friends uh, likes because uh, we were already friends. You know, Spike and I were friends back since '81. You know, mm-hmm. and Mira and I are, and I were friends. You know, and and they both recognized that I could edit. You know, and so and so, 
you know, by the stroke of luck or the gods smiled upon me, whatever it is, you know, uh, that's who I got to work with for most of my career. Right. Just, you know, and, and their friends and, you know, two of the best, uh, most talented uh, directors of our time, you know, mm-hmm. and who are doing, who are doing uh, um, not only great work, but important work. And, and so it's never been a point for me where, where if I'm, if I've been surprised at dailies, it's always been pleasantly surprised. Right. Right. That's it's great. Always, it's always been, wow, this is so much better than I thought it was. Going to be. <laughs> Um, so when did you you were born in England and so when did you come over to the states what was that journey I I, I was two years old I was two years old okay gotcha so I grew up in the I grew up mainly in the deep south you know gotcha okay because I had this that that helps clarify things because I was wondering so the documentary that you did um your first film the war at home right Mm -hmm. um at 19 nominated for best documentary feature and uh, focused on, I guess, was it, was it a kind of exploration of the of the Vietnam protests 10 years or so prior? What was that? Um, yeah, was yeah, it was, it was. And all said at the University, University of Wisconsin in Madison. And, right. uh, you know, it, we had this opportunity with this incredible archive of footage at the State Historical Society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and because they had covered, they had covered this, you know, those years of protest in, in great depth. And so we, we had like this treasure of footage, right. you know, and, and, and Madison also was this place that was, that was a great uh, uh, example of how movements grow, how they mm-hmm. grow. They, they, they don't blow up one day, they, they grow and they grow and they grow and they grow and they grow, right? I mean, sometimes certain movements blow up and they usually, usually they come down and then blow up bigger. But Madison was this progressive uh, progression of, of involvement. And so, you know, Madison was just this great, great, great place to do the film. And we lived there to, to make the film. And, um, right. What's your approach? Because, you know, I, I, I was looking that film up and I saw like the, you know, IMDb as one way of crediting anything. So they put cast, but it's it's a lot of the stock footage you mentioned from political leaders and whatnot from that yeah. time period. Yeah. Yeah. And I had done a documentary about um, the first black tankers in World War Two, the 761st. Oh, wow. wow. And when I did it, I was intent on not replicating the stock footage over and over again. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I soon discovered why you see the same shots over and over in a dock because I blew our budget out the water <laughs> by, by yeah. doing that. But like, what's your, yeah, what's that, your that, that, that battalion was great. They, they, I think they, they, they were the first battalion in Germany. They broke, they broke through some line, as I remember. Isn't that yeah, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They um, oh man, it's funny. They they broke through, and now I can't remember. But there was there was a point where um, they had built all of these like kind of triangular stone fortifications, yeah, so no that's one. Yeah, that's what I remember. Yeah, 
and they were able to do that. And then they they fought for 183 days straight in um, yeah. in World War II. I, I believe that actually uh, I knew some actors in A Miracle at St. Anna, and I believe Spike may have shown them my doc so they could see what these guys. They were should. Doing. They should. They should. Yeah. Um, but how, how do you, how do you approach dealing with stock footage? Because it sounds like, you know, you have your interviews from people who were living at the time and then you have stock footage. Like, how do you carve that together as a, as well, you a- know, I haven't done much of these things, quite mm-hmm. frankly. Uh, that first, that first film, the war at home, uh, you know, we had footage that had only been seen on uh, local Madison, Wisconsin television only once one evening show. That was it. Uh, so other stock footage, you know, that we've used, um, sometimes Spike wants to use stock footage. I think the most interesting use of that was at the end of Malcolm X, you know, mm-hmm. when, you know, cause Spike had said to me, uh, listen, when, 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 in, in, in the story, when, when Malcolm dies, it's going to be the last time we see Denzel as Malcolm X. From that point on, we only see the real Malcolm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and he knew that 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 I I, I had the experience to uh, to get footage, you know, that I wasn't just green at it because I'd done it I'd done it before. I mean, the word home, uh, but on other things, and uh, you know, and you know, we set out, or I set out to 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 try and find whatever it is I could find. And and sometimes stuff came in that was just remarkable. But you really have to assume that there's more out there than you ever imagined. And sometimes they're not. There's not, you know, as you found out, sometimes there's not. But right. but but sometimes there is stuff that just you go, Wow. Right. I've never seen this. I mean, at one point, at one point somebody sent us the proof sheet, right? Wow. And I thought, oh, this is so incredible, right? I mean, they had these strips, 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 strips of Malcolm, right? That's incredible. And, you know, talking, I think, in, in a radio interview or something, right? And, you know, and, you know, and he was a very, uh, he had a face that could light up. You could see it in the, in the photos, right? Just right. like what Ozzy Davis says to, to, in that eulogy, he says, about 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 critics that say turn away from Malcolm. He said, "Did you know Malcolm? Mm-hmm. Did you ever have Malcolm smile at you?" And you see these pictures, right. and his smile is is is. I mean, it just lights up, right? Right. So you see this strip, and you can. So I said, oh, "I'm I'm using I'm using all of this, right?" So you know, just pan across, pan across, pan across, and you know stuff like that. You feel. You feel more um, intimate, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and well, I, I think my my point of view towards towards any of that stock footage is just keep looking, keep looking, keep looking, because all of a sudden some some source is going to show up that it's just going to be like, wait a second, they had a camera, right, right, right. You know. Right. Yeah, and, then and, and they kept this footage all this time. What you know. Yeah, I, I can only imagine moving forward in, in today's world, like everybody's gonna have something. I mean, you can't oh, even watch the news with like the, 
you see the first yep. angle of like, I mean, you speak about Wisconsin, right? Like this crazy shit that's going on right now. And you, you watch it. And then like the next day on social media, there's like somebody who was right there with like a well-composed frame. And you're like, Amazing, huh? It's just Amazing. crazy. Yeah, I mean, just like, you know, when we finish, you know, the finish, the end of, of Black Klansman, Charlottesville, you know? Um, Judy Ailey, this is a great film researcher. Uh, she, uh, she kept finding more and more and more footage so that there was incidents, like fights, right? And then all of a sudden we'd find, well, we have the, the fight from this angle, and then this angle, and then this angle. <laughs> oh right. my lord! I have three right. cameras. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so, so uh, it, it's it's great to, to find that footage, and it's great great to be able to edit that way. So you're editing almost like you would a feature. You know? Right, right. Where? What was the first story that kind of spoke to you, connected to you, and made you say like, I want to be a filmmaker? Well, I mean, you mean what film did I ever watch? Well, you know, I, I kind of, it's kind of open-ended. Like it could, it could be like, you know, you had an uncle who could weave a good story and you're like, shit. I, oh, I mean, I had uncles, you know? like, I'm, I'm from, <laughs> you know, I had, I had uncles in the deep south. My mother, my mother's family's from Alabama. And I mean, I had uncles that could tell a great story. Um, you know, I mean, if you go back, I wanted to, I wanted to be a filmmaker early on. I mean, just movies in general, you know, just they they got to me, you know. And when you're down in Montgomery, Alabama, you know, um, and you fall in love with such a thing, you 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 start watching as much as you can possibly watch, um, and certain films, you know, rock your boat. Um, but that, but you know. I met somebody, Glenn Silber, who was trying to make this film about the anti-Vietnam War movement in Madison. I said, well, I'll go out to Madison for a while. And I got nothing else going on. Uh, I was, you know, and, uh, and, and my job right away was to go through the boxes of archival film, right? Mm -hmm. And that, they were just unmarked boxes from the 60s. Right. Was it like Super 16 or? No, there was 16. It was just 16. And, you know, they shot, they shot so the, there was either a magnetic stripe or an optical tracker along the side for sound. Right. You know, that's how they did news. And the first box I opened up was, was from October of 1967, which was the month that, that in, in Madison, everything changed in terms of the anti-Vietnam War movement. And there was this huge, this huge demonstration in which the cops overreacted and actually galvanized the movement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every day I'd go in and I'd put up a regular, it was negative too, I was watching negative, you know, and the stories unfolding of what happened in October of 1967. At the end of going through that first box, I said, wow, there's a, there's a great movie here, you know? Mm -hmm. And so for me, probably if I hadn't had that, I mean, I, I don't know if I had stuck it out and made that movie or, or helped make it, you know, I was the co-producer, co-director. Um, but I was so inspired after that. that right. It's, it's amazing how timing, timing is everything, you know, like no. I, I just happened to go to a school with a film, with a super eight film program. 
how does that happen? You know, and without that, I'd probably I'd probably be a, a, a much more well-paid lawyer or something, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you always say you went to an undergraduate school that had Super 8. Yeah, well, my, my high school had Super oh, 8. Oh, and, Super 8. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so oh, I was okay. like, I love this. And I was developing the film in the, uh, in the, it was black and white. We developed it in the lab, in the classroom. And oh, then wow. uh, if we wanted to shoot color, we had like one role, one three minute role we could use and we had to <laughs> mail it to Texas. Um, and so when you shot color, man, you thought you were like, you treated it like your magnum opus. In Montgomery, when I told people I'm gonna I'm I wanna be a I'm gonna be a filmmaker, um everybody just thought, <laughs> no, you're not. What are you what are you talking about? I'm gonna go uh -huh. off and make movies. Even my father said to me, Have you ever met anybody who ever even worked on a movie? Ever worked on any movie? Have you ever even met somebody? Which dad, no, I I haven't, <laughs> you know, but but I figure I figure real people make them and yeah. i think that real and they, that they, they come from everywhere I, I said i bet they come from everywhere you know and that they're not just born into it you know right so and so did you go um to so to make that work on that film at 19 did you did you uh pursue college uh, or filmmaking college or did you just get right to work yeah well i went i, I moved to new york and soon after i moved to new york there was a screening of a film called Lady for a Day, a film that Frank Capra had made in the 30s, and he remade it uh, called Hole in the Head in the 50s. And, and nobody had seen the film for decades, the original uh, Lady for a Day. And he was going to do a screening of uh, the film mm -hmm. at Columbia University, I think. That's where it was. And, and I mean, I'd read Frank Capra's book, a uh, name above the title, and, and I like his movies. And uh, so I went really early to the screening because I thought this place, this is going to be mad, mobbed because Frank Capra is going to speak at it, right? And I walk in over an hour early, and the only person sitting in the auditorium is Frank Capra. Oh, man. And I thought, whoa. And I walk over and I sit with him, and we talk. And at one point I said, listen, I, I, I'm not going to college and I'm thinking of taking some time off and then, and then go, you know, but I, I want to be a filmmaker like you. I want to be a film director like you. And he goes, well, yeah, I understand. And, and you should, and he said, you should go to college. You absolutely should. You must go to college. And I know he hadn't. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, he said, but you know, college isn't going to make you a filmmaker. Is getting out and working in the business, and that's what's going to really make you a filmmaker. So what I heard was Frank Capra is telling me, "Don't go to college, make a movie." <laughs> that's what I, that's what I heard. That's well, not what know, he was saying, but that's what I heard. You know, I, I, I and I, I see that you also teach at Columbia, right? I taught one semester. <laughs> Hey, that one semester is, is, is you teach. <laughs> I taught at NYU and, and, and I, I would often, um, I found that when I got back as a, as, a, as a teacher, I was like, I'm going to tell these students all the things no one ever told me. And it was eye-opening 
but also, uh, and sometimes they weren't ready for it, but I would see them five years later and they'd be like, thank you for telling me it wow. wasn't about my talent. Oh, good. You know, and and because yeah. the, the degree is cool, but like, it, you're right, it, it's not it's not going to make you good. You're going to have to figure out how to figure the, this shit out. Yeah, get in and you get in and you'll learn so much by doing it. Yeah. So, uh, the other places, the only other places I ever taught was in Cuba at the International Film School. Mm -hmm. And in Kenya at Maisha. And um, I, I found those experiences to be very rewarding, especially, yeah. especially, I'm not Kenya, what did I say? Uh, Uganda is Uganda. Is right. That's what Maisha is in Kampala. But I found, right. I found that teaching at, uh, at Maisha was very, very, very rewarding because you have, you have people there who uh, are so enthusiastic. Mm -hmm. They really want to make, uh, and their enthusiasm so far as what I could tell in the couple of times I've been there, was that it, it seems so pure, right, Frank? Yeah. You know, and they would talk about like, you know, well, you know, we don't really have the advantages. We don't have the, you know, we, you know, you know, we're all, we're here in Uganda. And we're way away from, you know, Hollywood. I said, listen, I'm from Montgomery, Alabama, <laughs> and you know. I felt just as far away from it as you do. And don't think like that. It's not important. Right. It's not important. You got to go out there. You got to learn your craft and you got to, and, and you got to make the movies you can make that nobody else can make. Right. You know, right. stuff that nobody else knows. You know? Yeah. And, and the stuff, you know, is, is more universal than you think. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and eventually, and eventually, you know, a community builds, gets built because Mira Nair has, you know, got this great school and she's really building a community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and somebody will rise out of there, probably more than one somebody, you right. know, you know, and that's what happens. All of a sudden the magic starts to happen and you yeah. can't, you can't explain it. You know, I mean, why does Spike, why did Spike and I know each other? Yeah. yeah. So how did that happen? So that because so you said that's about two years, right? After after the war at home, you guys uh -huh. meet in New York. How, how no, did that... we actually met in in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. We met in Atlanta, Georgia. I was spending the summer in Atlanta, and and he was down there uh, working with uh, a guy named George Folks, and I knew George, and George had gone to Morehouse, and and um, and 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 uh, they were doing this cable cable show, kind of a magazine show, but mm -hmm. like with high school students. They were working with high school students who were really supposed to be making the show. And um, so I met Spike that summer down there in Atlanta. And then we both were back in New York uh, that fall. And Spike was at NYU. And I helped found this, this company called First Run Features, which uh, mm -hmm. distributes with one, uh, really the first distributor of independent movies, you know, um, that as like, that's what they, we founded it for. And right. um, at one point we needed somebody to, to work part-time coming in and getting all the prints ready that, that came in from being rentals, you know, get them ready to go back out again, right? right. I thought, well, this is a really good job for a film student. And it was down in Greenwich Village. And so, you know, I just met Spike and he was the only film student I knew and he was at NYU. So I asked him, you know, you want to, you want to do this? And he said, yeah. So um, I think he was making a hundred dollars a week 
Not bad back then, huh? Mom, I'm not too <laughs> bad. Uh, I was the president of the company, and, and I was making $200 a week. <laughs> you know? But but through that, through that, we got to know each other. And, um, and you know, over the next couple of years, we got to really know each other. Uh, and the one thing that really drew us together was, I think, a few things. I mean, probably just personalities, but also that that there was things that we both really admired that, that I found was very rare in, in the independent uh, filmmaking world in New York at that time. One thing was we both loved Broadway musicals. Hmm. And um, we both love them. We still both love them. Every once in a while, I talk about them, you know. Um, and, uh, and we both really respected entertainment, you know, like, 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 like you see something that is, is really good, you know, and really entertaining. Maybe it doesn't have a lot of, of uh, message to it, right? Right. Right. Uh, Donald O'Connor. Uh, singing, make them laugh, right? right? I mean, that you just look at and you go, oh, wow, how do, how do you do that? Well, you know, in the filmmaking world in New York, the independent world in New York at that time, it was, what? What? You know? But with Spike, it was, yeah, that's great, isn't it? That's amazing, right? right? right. And, you know, and, and so, and so that, that pulls... No pretension. Well, you know, it's just that you know, politically, you know, we're we're we're, we're similar, you know, you know, our political point of view, and that we want to make movies that have a message, right. but that we can also appreciate, we can appreciate, you know, great musicals like West Side Story, you know, uh, and think think the marvels, you know, um, and 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 watch somebody some somebody just you know, a great writing, a great performance, and, you know, and be, and be wild by it. So what was the, I'm just uh, thinking, what was the first one that you cut? Was it, because... I got a scene and she's got to have it. Okay. Right? Nice hat. Um, <laughs> it's not from the original, but, you know, um, and... And it was a scene that Spike was having trouble with. It was a uh, sex scene between Nola and Greer, mm-hmm. and uh, he had shot it in the camera. It was supposed to. It was supposed to work just at, in the camera. Was it the one where they're popping around with the? Yeah. And so, so he said, "Man, I'm having trouble here. I don't know what to do with it. Can you give it a, a shot, right?" And so, um, and so I cut that. I cut that sequence for him. And then, and then he did a book. He, he, he was keeping a diary all the way through that. And he made a book about the making of She's Gotta Have It, which I thought, I was just surprised, you know, that he had done a diary, you know? Right. I mean, uh, there was things that I didn't know about Spike, you know? Um, I wasn't quite aware of his sense of history. You know, he had already had this real sense of, of uh, we are doing something important and it's historic and I've got to, I've got to, uh, 
I've got to keep a memoir on it. Right. It's like, oh, you know, I never, I've never thought about that once in my life to think of doing mm-hmm. that. And, you know, and Spike is deep like that. I mean, you know, he's got, he's got, he's got an awareness that, um, that is impressive. And uh, so, but in this book, he wrote, he wrote, Barry is going to cut my next movie. I'm not going to cut my next movie. Barry's going to cut my edit, edit my next movie. You know, and he never said that to me. I read that in the book. Mm-hmm. You know? so I, next time we saw each other, I said, Spike, what is this? You're going to, yeah, 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 yeah. You're, you're going to edit. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, you're a great editor. And I was like, I'm not an editor at all. <laughs> what are you talking about? You know? And, um, I mean, it took me, it took me years before I considered myself an editor. It didn't, took me until I did Malcolm X. Wow. I, 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 what ahead. was it about? Um, so, so you did School Days, uh, Hello Bombay with Mira Nair, Do the Right Thing. Uh, you wrote and directed a feature, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Lonely America. Yeah, but Another. I also did Salam Bombay in there, you know? Okay. So, I think oh. right around the time, I think right before we did Do the Right Thing, we did Salam Bombay. Okay. But I okay. did like, I mean, I mean, if you look at the films that I cut at that moment, you know, because I did direct this one film, but I did uh, Salam Bombay, Do the Right Thing, the Madonna film, Truth or Dare, and then Malcolm X, you know? And, and what was it, what was it that, what clicked, I guess, is the question on Malcolm X that made you feel in 1992 now that you could say you were an editor when you hadn't before? I mean... I mean, it was just, it was just, you know, I'd already, you know, um, you know, Salam Bombay was considered, well, it was a hit. I mean, it won the camera door in Canada, right. you know, and do the right thing. Well, do the right thing was special. Right. You know? And Truth or Dare, the Madonna film, was a runaway documentary hit, you know, and so, all, you know, people loved all, all those films. So I, I thought, well, maybe, maybe, maybe I got some talent. <laughs> maybe I really am an editor, you know? That's interesting. So it, it kind of took, for you, it was like the response and the, uh, and, and the reception to the films that kind of helped cement that. Uh, yeah. That because, thing, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, through all those films, I really sort of expected somebody to walk into the room and say, what is he doing here? Right. You know, right. I especially expected that on like Salam Bombay and do the right thing. Like, you know, you, you like, it's like I expected somebody from the studio to say, you cannot hire your buddy to edit the movie. All right. This is a real movie. <laughs> you can't, you can't, you know, you got to get a real editor. All right. You know, that's, that's what I thought. That's truly what I thought. Right. I mean, I really just expected somebody to grab me by the ear and just pull me out. Of, come on, come on, let's go. You know? Yeah, I, I love the honesty of that because there is a, we all kind of have that, what do they, what do they call that? Im- imposter syndrome where we're kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, like, like the first movie I'd made a, a raise half a million for a feature. 
And I remember the first person that wrote a check, I was like, you're really fucking doing that? Like, <laughs> that's crazy. You, you, you know what I mean? And then, and then you like take it and you like run to the bank before they can call you and say, I've changed before my mind. You change, before you change your mind too. <laughs> and go back and say, I can't take this. You, you know, you know, I don't know what I'm doing and, and I'm probably no good. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a... But we, we all but have we, that. We, we all have through. that. We all have that. We all do. This is Millicent Shelton, and you're listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. How to Succeed as a Creative Professional is Pete Chapman's upcoming book about his journey as a director. What started in 1993 has been a marathon full of persistence and creative pivots transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school to running a production company to directing television and commercials and ultimately eyeing a return to the feature films that gave him his start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration, this book will be for any person eyeing a successful career in a creative art. How to Succeed as a Creative Professional is coming soon. I've said this on this podcast multiple times, you know, um, actually, since for the for the folks with video, also, I, I have a I have a copy of this book signed by Spike. Oh, yeah. Right book. And, you know, I had uh, loaned him a Super 8 camera for um, uh, Red Hook Summer. And this was the exchange. Oh, you did? Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. But I look at those films and I'm like, there's like great mastery at work here and and you're and you're kind of living through it from a position as you've mentioned which is kind of the artist quandary i guess right um so you mentioned uh malcolm x what was it uh so so all right so you've mentioned why it kind of clicked and you, and you said okay now I, I might view myself like that but like uh, was there some, did you feel like more like in control of the craft? Like you, you were able to you know, harness it more? It wasn't so much that at all. It wasn't like that at all. It was, I mean, cause, cause I never, I never spent a lot of time thinking about if I was in control. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, I just jumped in and I did it. Right. And, I, and one thing that was, I guess, a gift for me is that I can lose myself in editing. I can just lose it. And people say, oh, you know, you must have so much patience. It, 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 you must, you know, how, how can you stand the tedium? Mm-hmm. And I answer them, man, if it's tedious, get the fuck out of the editing room. Right. Uh, you don't belong there. You don't be- and you can't do the work if you think it's tedious. Right. You can't do the work. You got to lose yourself. I mean, lose yourself. So that the hours go by, and uh, at the end of the day, you're exhausted, right? You know, because you've been living in this world, and, and I can work fast, right? I, I, you know, but but I lose it, and, and I'm there, and I'm uh, and and I and I, I could do that from the beginning, right? You know, and uh, you know, I never thought so much about the craft of it, right. you know. Uh, and, and and can I really do this? And um, I, you know, I had uh, I, don't know, I don't know. Maybe I had an innate gift for mm-hmm. it, and it came naturally. 
Were you like a were always a problem solver? Because like I have I have friends who are engineers who like when we were young they were the ones like taking toys apart, like expense like good toys. And I'm like, why are you taking that shit apart? Uh, and then cut to 20 years later, they're like, you know, uh, uh, some whatever kind of civil engineer like building things. Um, no, I would you know, say so. I would say that more than that, I was probably a reader, you know, and I think that I, I, I you know, that there was something in, in reading, and I love novels, and there's something in reading novels that teaches you about storytelling, teaches you about rhythm, mm-hmm. you know, because so much of writing is, is, uh, is about rhythm, you know, uh, right. in, in terms of, uh, writing something that is so, so beautifully put together. And certain people, certain people like, like James Baldwin, I never could figure out what James Baldwin was doing, you know? It's just gorgeous writing, and you, and you look at these sentences over and over in these paragraphs, and you think, what's he doing? What's he doing, you know? You know, and, and it's... It's invisible and it's seamless and it's gorgeous, mm. yeah. you know? And there's a lot of times, there's a lot of times I spent a lot of time thinking about the written word and literature. And, and, and as you can tell, James Baldwin's one of my favorites, not my favorite author, you know? And um, I try to learn, I try to learn from, from what they do in terms of how they write. Right. You know? And how they tell a story, and how they how they introduce a character, and how they move on, and how they mm. tell you this and tell you this and tell you that, to, you know, so that you don't get lost, so it keeps you interest, and also to make a point. All these things at the same time, you know. Right. So yeah, I can only say that that I feel like that was one of my bigger influences is is the novel. Right. That's a great point. I've, I you know I I. I don't write in volume. I write for like specific projects, but I, I, I remember the first thing I learned was start that scene later and end it earlier. And it's probably oh, yeah. be better. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And then, then pass it off to you and let you make it even better. Oh, um, absolutely. You sit there and you say, you know, this scene hasn't started until here and it's ended there. <laughs> right. We got to get, get out. out. Get out of it. So let, I'd love to talk about process a little bit. Like when you get, uh, what is your, uh, I don't want to get overly in the woods, but like just in general, like when you get a, when you first get a script to when you start assembling those dailies, like what do you kind of do as a, as a creative person? Oh, you know, really, you know, I got to tell you, it's, it's not, it's not a big process for me. It's mm-hmm. not. I shoot from the hip, you know. Uh, I'm very instinctive. I mean, I'm a very instinctual editor. So I don't really think a lot about it when I read the script. Not a lot. I mean, I think in terms of certain things, you know. Like, uh, you know, if somebody has, you know, a 10-page scene uh, that opens the, the, the film and it's all in a bedroom, you know, I say, uh-uh. Uh-uh. You got two people sitting, sitting, you know, on the edge of a bed talking uh-uh. for 10 pages. Uh-uh. Right. Uh-uh. Right. But, but it's got to be that glaring for me. Um, right. You know, for me, 
I mean, once again, you know, I get to work with incredibly talented people. So it's not like I'm thinking, oh, well, how are they going to make this work? You know, Mike knows how to make things work, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So he's got he comes up with a script at a certain point, you know, like Black Klansman. You know, the first time he sent Black, me Black Klansman, he had not worked on it. The first time he sent me Black Klansman, and I, this was the only time I've ever done this. I called him up. I said, you really shouldn't do this movie. You know, it's, it, the script has glaring problems, and and I don't think it's a particularly good script. I think, and he goes, "Yeah, I hear you. I, th I think you're right. I think you're right. I think you're right." Then, two months later, he sends me this revised script, right? And he's worked on it, you know. And wow, yeah, you know, he's made it work. He's made it work. Right. It was. And um, and so uh, from my process, really isn't very intellectual, you know. I see the footage. Uh, I, I, my favorite thing is to be able to see dailies with the director with Spike. You know? mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't. Really so you guys happen. will watch them together. Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, we used to watch them on on the big screen. Now we now we watch them in the in the edit room, you know. But we always watch them together, and I I hear him talk about stuff. You know, and and I take that in, uh, and that's that's great. That's great, great. Right. Because my job as an editor is to deliver his vision. Do you that's do that job. in the like when? Where do you find the time to watch dailies during production? Because I because just coming from the TV world, it's like I I don't I see dailies on my own, and then I get the editor's cut, and then I get in into it with them. Well, you know, it used to be that you would do it at the end of the day. You do, you know, the day before, I mean, dailies. Right. Uh, and, uh, and now they build up and you watch, sometimes you watch them over the weekends. And sometimes it builds up to where at the end of the film, you have to take almost a week to watch the dailies mm -hmm. together. But it's a great, great thing to do. It's a great thing to do. Right. And, and, it, and it informs the cut. And then what I do after that is I, I dive in. You know, once I see a scene, a dailies with a spike, then I just, I dive in and, and just start cutting, you know? And I have ideas. Um, and sometimes the ideas are, are, are worthwhile and good, but sometimes they're not. And, you know, you start cutting and you think, oh no, that's not working. That's not working, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I thought it was going to be brilliant. It's <laughs> not so good, you know? And so, and so you know, rework it. You know, and with the Avid, I mean, I used to work in film, right? And I was fast in film, but Avid, I mean, you know, I mean, you just got everything right there, right? Right. You don't have to have trims hanging behind you. And Has uh, your process changed but with digital versus no, film? No, not really. Or? It's just gotten faster. It got faster, yeah. you know? And, and you know, you click a button, all of a sudden you got, you have a match frame. You go right, right. back to the tape, you know? So, um... So, so um, my process is jumping in and feeling it, just feeling it, mm -hmm. you know? And, so and, and I don't do an assembly. I don't do an assembly. I that cut, was going to be my I, next question. I cut right from the, right, right from the, right the get-go, I, I cut. Because, and anyway, Spike doesn't, doesn't want to see an assembly either. He wants to see a cut. Right. You know, that's what he wants. So you're in there, you, and that's for people listening who might not be familiar, like an assembly is kind of a, 
I, I describe it as a, it's using the word in the definition, but it's the assembled picture, kind of not really too many creative decisions in it. It's just kind of like a representation of the coverage more or less um, and all of the script typically, right? But you're getting in there and, and saying, you know, I don't, I, I moved this scene 20 after scene 48 and I decided that we could get out I of it. I don't do that. No? Okay. No, no, not that much. I don't. I mean, because Spike has got to see it or a director, any director has got to see like what they've, what they've envisioned with the script, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Me, I might have ideas about, about how to restructure, but first they have to see, they have to see a cut that's close to the script. But 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 a tight tight cut, a very tight right. cut, right. You know, and rhythm the rhythm should be what I feel the rhythm should be, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, every once in a while, and it's rare, but every once in a while, I might I might drop a line, and just mm -hmm. say, man, that line is doing nothing. That line is doing nothing. It's in the way. I gotta get I gotta I gotta get that line out of out of here. Often I don't do that, but if I feel it really really strongly. I will do it. Right. Do, are, are there, have there been any times where you've ever kind of, you know, had to, you've had to fight for something um, in a scene that the director just didn't agree on? And I assume that's, that's a yes, but over, over all the films you've done, but no, it's always been simpatico. No, it's not even simpatico as much as it's their film, mm -hmm. you know? I, you know, as an editor, I get to make most of the choices. If you have a director that comes in and really works, like, ah, oh, no, no, we're going to recut this, we're going to recut, we're going to do, you know, and you have to do a lot of work, then maybe you'll come down to only 60% of the choices are yours, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's usually 85%, something like that. Is mine. Yeah. I can't give this person 15%. You know what I mean? And right. it's their movie. I gotta, I gotta fight them. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't, you know, I'm not going to do yeah. that. Even if I think, well, that just ruins it. I mean, there was a, a case with this film called Detachment that I did with Dave, with uh, Tony K and Adrian Brody starred in mm -hmm. it. And we had, the three of us, had to fight the producers for two weeks, 14 days straight in the editing room. All of us in the editing room, fighting for our cut. I mean, we fought for it, scene by scene by scene by scene by scene. Wow. You know? And just a fundamental difference of, a, of opinion on, on, the, on themes or storytelling or they, style. They wanted to make a certain movie yeah. And, and 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 they had their own editor and they made their own movie you know mm -hmm. and and we and, and and Tony had hired me paid me with his own money to to cut another movie you know and um, we showed that to Adrian and Adrian came back to to New York so okay we we're, we're going to fight for this right because because sometimes other people can, they don't feel like they're doing this, but water down a movie, you know? And they don't exactly. think that that's what they're doing. But but however it is, they're watering it down, you know? Uh, sometimes taking the edge off of it because they're uncomfortable or something. And, right. and we had a great movie. 
and 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 we fought for it. And it's a great movie, Detachment. Uh, I'm really proud of Detachment. I'm, I'm proud of a lot of the, the work that Spike and I have done, and Mira and I have done. And, you know, a Detachment is special. That's I'm, I have to check that one out, and that's it's a shame that it comes down to that sometimes. But you know, knowing having your instincts and convictions, and just knowing that you got to fight for that film is is what it's all about. It's sometimes tough, you know, because sometimes you doubt yourself, you know. Right. You know, I'm I'm sure you've been there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Affirmative. Um, and, and in TV, because I, I, I've kind of transitioned from features and gone to TV and now I'm trying to get back to features. But the, it's a, it's, the, the battles are, are different, but usually built upon the same uh, pillars of like. Well, I in think television, there just can be so many voices. Right. So many right. people, you know, uh, it's like commercials. And 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 I, I mean I admire television, and, and you know, um, I, I, eventually, eventually that's where all the work will be. I mean, hmm. we won't. I mean, we will have features, but I mean, right. they'll still be made for streaming. Right. Made for streaming. Well, I'm I'm moving out of this interview with your eighty-five fifteen note because that that's what you're saying in the, in that film editing. Uh, world is very much applicable to what I'm doing as a director of TV where it's like I've done like I've done all this stuff and shot it and blocked it and if we're in a uh, conversation about wanting to change something here or there and actually I never am involved with it because it happens after I've gone on yeah, yeah, um, yeah. but that 15% I mean it's your show you were you worked on it for years before I ever showed up and I'm just trying to help you tell the story that you are telling for whatever uh, reasons for this episode. Yeah. Um, yeah it's, so a show runner show. it's a showrunner show. Yeah. Um, so how about, uh, so you're directing, I know you've got, um, you've got a film coming out, right? In a, in a, in a, I got a film while, that, that premiered last night at the American Black Film Festival. All right. So how does that, so was it in, this is called Son of the South, you, uh, did you, you directed it, you edited it, and did you write it? I did. So, uh, you, you, what were we thinking? <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to have a little light project, a little light hobby. Um, so yeah, what, what's that film about? And then, um, since before, cause I have, I have amnesia, I'll forget to ask this. How is a film premiering in the COVID world at a film festival? I mean, it's streaming. It's streaming. It streamed last night, you know. And uh, well, the film, uh, the film is about a guy named Bob Zellner, um, like me, a white guy from Alabama, uh, who in 1961 found himself sort of, uh, 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 you know, at the not exactly the birth, but the early days of the civil rights movement. His grandfather. Had was in the Klan, in the Ku Klux Klan in Birmingham. Um, and, but, but Bob's heart, though, was in the right place. Uh, and a number of things happened to him in the spring and summer of 1961. And some very, very, very famous things, like, like uh, the, in May of 1961, the Freedom Riders came to Montgomery and were badly beaten. 
in front of the Greyhound Bus Depot. And Bob uh, was graduating from Huntington College in Montgomery mm -hmm. uh, that, that month. And, and he heard that was going on. And he, he ran down to downtown and, and pulled people out, you know. And nobody stopped him because he's a six-foot-tall, blonde, blue-eyed, good old boy. You know, right. I mean, right. they, they, they thought they, they, they probably thought, you know, you're going to take them off and do something to them. Right. Uh, you know, and for Bob, that was um, one of those crossroads he came to where he said, well, who am I? What do I stand for? What do I think is right? Where do I stand? What kind of Christian am I? Right. Do I, do, I, do I say, not my problem? You know? I mean, there's even a, a, a scene in the film where he says to his girlfriend at the time, who's outraged, that she can feel he wants to do something. Right? And he says, you know, I was down there in a riot yesterday. I walked right through it. And I know why. Because I'm just like everybody else. I should get a tattoo. Tattooing on my body somewhere. Not my problem. Mm -hmm. You know, so he is, it's a moral now dilemma to him. And for, for many white people in the South, it was not a moral dilemma. <laughs> it was either, either we're going to beat them or, uh-uh, I'm not involved. You know, mm -hmm. and at one point, and this is also true, and we have it in the film, Rosa Parks says to him, because she is, he said to her, uh, um, I haven't chosen sides here. And she says, you know, something really bad is going to happen right in front of you someday. Hmm. And you're going to have to make a choice. Because, because not choosing is a choice. Right. You know? And in 1961, Rosa Parks was already a living legend. You know, it's, to some extent, it's like the voice of God talking to you. Right. You know? Right. And so, so the film is about his struggles during that spring and summer and, his, and, and the continuously running into these crossroads and challenging him, who are you? Mm -hmm. What's your moral code? Who are you? Down, down deep, what kind of person are you? I mean, that's the voice inside of his head, you know? And by the end of that summer... Um, you know, he finds himself that morning in, the, in Mississippi, in Macomb, Mississippi, uh, the morning that the African-American high school students marched impromptu, first march in the history of Mississippi, calling, catching everybody off guard, mm -hmm. and including the handful of Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee members, thick members, who were there that morning. And they were there for the same reason that the students were marching, because of the murder uh, uh, of... Um, of Herbert Lee, um, and uh, and you know, and Bob, Bob had a conversation with himself about well, all the reasons why he can't join this march, you know, and he has lots of reasons, right? Right, and finally he says, and he hears himself say, uh, and you know, and if I go down there, you know, I'm the only white person, right, in this march, there's going to be more violence than normal. <laughs> And they said, oh, really, Bob? Another voice, and it said, oh, really, Bob? What's a normal level of violence? 
words. Right. And he understands that he has already accepted that there was something normal and maybe acceptable. Right. That these people are going to march for this and then they're going to get arrested or beaten up. And, you know, he understands, man, if I'm thinking that, I got I to join this march. You right. know? And the things that happened after that when they got down there, you know, are the things that um, push Bob over the edge in terms of giving himself mm -hmm. over to, and, and really, and really um, um, committing himself, you know? Well, that now, it's like we've, too many people have not wanted to acknowledge the line that's been in the sand since 1619, you know? Yeah. And now folks are getting a little bit more fed up because it's, it's you know, it's, it's those same cameras that you had for Charlottesville footage. It's, it's harder to turn your head when you, uh, you're just trying to see what your friends are eating and, and you're seeing protests in your, in your, in your scroll. And that yeah. might be the best yeah. advent of social media. Um, yeah, where do you stand? Where do you stand? Where do you stand? You know, because, because you can't, because you can't back off and just say, you know, no, it's, that's, that's, that's over there. Well, no, right. it's not over there. It's not. You're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. Right. It'll, it'll be in your front yard before you know it. Hey, and, 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 and it is anyway. Right. I mean, it affects our lives all the time. Right. You know? It affects our lives all the time. What, you know, even, the, uh, even these people think it doesn't. You know, that it's not in their front yard. Well, well, you know what? It's already in your home, you know? Yeah. In you yeah. when you walk out, when you drive, when you run into somebody on the street. It's in you. Right. Oh, and that's the problem with some, some of these cops. Is that that you know uh, you know I think that that they're looking and they're just seeing somebody who's black. Well, that's did you see? Seeing, this? That's all they're seeing. They're not seeing a person. They're not seeing how they're acting. They're not hearing what they're saying to them. They're not. Right. They're just uh oh uh oh uh oh. You know. Right. Yeah. The threat is the skin, not even the weapon. Like this Rittenhouse kid who just walks right through the approaching cops, having just shot three people and killed two and he has his hands up and they're like, Oh no, just go, just go. Like it's it, no big deal. He's got a gun. He's got a gun. I mean, it's, it's, I mean that, that, and again, right. For that was like, people have known that and been saying that for years and then you watch it for some and they're still acting like it's not what they're seeing. Yeah. I don't even know. Like it, it but I, I don't know. I have a feeling enough people. Uh, well, I don't even know if I want to say what. I want to hear yeah, it now. <laughs> you know, but like, I mean, it, it's for, if you look at all the information and and just take what's being spewed. Because I, I I hop around on both. I watch I watch my my MSNBC. I watch my I dip in on Fox. I dip in on CNN, and it's like I look at Twitter, and it's like people really are are so scared and concerned about holding on to this privilege that they have designed um, that they're willing to look, potentially provoke a race war, 
you know, because I mean, you got armed people doing that. Well, there's a there's a response to what happened in Wisconsin, right? Like if now protesters know, like I can be shot walking around by a fucking random person uh, who's got supremacist, you know, feelings and ammunition, then what does that mean on the other side at the next protest? Well, yeah, I mean, as, but as you know, it's, 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 it's across the entire society, you know, yeah. that, that in so many ways that, that, um, you know, it's not just about cops shooting somebody, you know, it's, it's about so many, so much stuff mm -hmm. it's about, from, from the, you know, infant mortality and, and, and how many women die in, in, Childbirth, you know, um, it's clean water, lack of it. it, it you know, and you're, you're starting there, the beginning of life, and right, and already, already, there is this pervasive racism that that people are dying from, right? You know, and uh, and 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 you know, and I know it's not just dying; it's, it's living. It's it's that, yeah. um, and, and and the thing about it for for, for me personally. Uh, you, you know, uh, it, it, uh, it, it, it hurts our souls. Right. Right. You know? no, I think we're fighting for the soul of the nation. Right. Well, I've, I've got fingers crossed. I'm, I'm, I'll be at the polls and I'm, I'm actually working, uh, on a, on a, well, it was a short film, but now it looks like it'll be an audio podcast because, uh, I'm not, I can't bear the brunt of COVID protocols, uh, for my own production, mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, working on a little piece to kind of talk about, uh, what the, a second term might look like and what we want to avoid. Mm -hmm. Uh, so a little, little, little cautionary tale, a little, mm -hmm. uh, discreet charm of the bourgeoisie-esque deal, <laughs> um, that, you know, I wrote it the minute I got shut down. Yeah. The minute the minute they shut us down at work, I was like, I gotta do something with this feeling because well, it's it's just crazy. Um, yeah. Well, the last thing I like to get is, uh, do you have any you know words of advice to? Um, and let me let me pick the the audience for this question with your expertise um, uh, for for emerging and aspiring directors on how to how to best um, collaborate with an editor. Oh, hmm. okay. Yeah, I think I do. Uh, I mean, I think that communication is key. You know, uh, uh, I mean, I personally, as I've said before in this interview, I like watching dailies with the director and watching everything. And I know it's time consuming, but but you get you get a communication started there, and and hopefully you get on the same page. So that you're not, so that, so that, and, and as a director, you're also familiarizing yourself, really familiarizing yourself with the footage. Mm -hmm. So you really know, I mean, you shot it, so you, so that's good. And then you see it again, so you know, and you know whether or not you, that line was working or not working. And so when the director, uh, when the editor uses you know, take two instead of take one, and you think, no, 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 no. That line was better, right? Um, but, you know, get the communication. Communicate what it is. 
let your editor then work. Step out of the room. Let them work. Let them get a cut together uh, so that you can step back in and uh, see what they did. Now, you know, it's not in concrete. And so, uh, you know, most of the time the film gets found in, in the recutting of it. And just feel and be confident that that's, gonna, that that's where it's at rather than being on top of an editor. Because it's your movie. You get to make those choices. And don't be intimidated by an editor. And if an editor ever tells you that won't work, you say to that editor, stop, 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 stop. Turn around, look at me, look at me. And you make them look at you and you say, don't ever say that to me. We're gonna do it. And I need your talent and I need you to be open to try this, you know? Don't ever let an editor tell you that won't work. Because that is death. That's death when, when people don't want to try stuff. Mm. And don't want to try stuff that you want to do. You know? Come on. That's not, it's not fair. And it's death. It's creative death. That's my advice. I love that. I love that. You know, and, and I, couldn't, I couldn't find a better metaphor upon which to end an interview. It's the death of this interview on that poignant statement um but i i I sincerely appreciate uh your time barry and uh want to thank you again for joining us no it's great been great really great awesome thank you What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N. All right, so that was episode 17, Barry Alexander-Brown. I hope y'all enjoyed that. Next week, tune in for The Obvious, episode 18, where we will be joined by the super talented Ramla Muhammad, a writer who got her start in the Shondaland universe. Um, She wrote many in episode four, Scandal. known for that that crossover episode between Scandal and How to Get Away with Murder. Um, And most recently, she was a co-EP and writer on Little Fires Everywhere. We'll get into her writing process, her journey, uh, and uh, all the good things that we talk about on Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. So thank you all for uh, tuning in. Dive back into that catalog if you haven't heard all the other interviews. And stay safe and spread love. Peace.